HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Cooking in Mexico from A to Z. Um, one of your hosts, Aaron Sanchez. I am Sarela Martinez. And we are beyond ecstatic. We're going to be talking about a subject that's really awesome that I think a lot of people are going to be super enlightened and excited to hear about, which is we're focusing on noodles, the other pilaf that has permeated Mexico. And who better to join us to speak about this, this wonderful subject than the lovely uh, Christina Potters. Uh, she's the owner of Mexico Cooks, uh, it's food tours. Uh, she's uh, American born, but living in Mexico for the last 40 years. And she's given a beautiful perspective on the life and the culture and the cuisines of this glorious country that we all share. And is now, by the way, a Mexican citizen. So she is representing in a wonderful way, uh, beyond Mexican food history and native mestizo cultures, uh, this is one of her huge passions, and she's continued to do this. And get a load of this. She has eaten in 29 of the 32 states of Mexico, including the Distrito Federal, Mexico City, as we know it, and, and continues to be a serious student of Mexico, as I am and my mom are. You never know all that can be known. Uh, she has guided tours throughout Mexico City, Oaxaca, uh, the beautiful state of Michoacan, including the city of Morelia, which we all love. It's all about hands-on tours that she really dedicates herself to, uh, whether we're talking about uh, meals at the home, the tradition, you know, visiting with traditional Mexican cooks. This is really what it's all about. And today we're going to focus on this beautiful topic that I think a lot of people don't have a, a surface knowledge about is the history of noodles, noodles in Mexico, or fideos, and the combination of all the influences from Europe. So with that being said, welcome, bienvenido, Cristina. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Aaron, and thank you, Sabrella, for inviting me to join in this conversation. I listen to your podcast all the time, and I really love not only your guests, many of whom are friends of mine, but also listening to other people I don't know and hearing all of the fascinating topics. Wonderful. So I think that today we had this discussion about the subject. Because uh, 
because Cristina understood that we we're going to talk about sopa seca, which is a, a way that we cook pasta in Mexico. In Mexico, we don't normally cook pasta like they do in Italy, let's say, or here in the United States by boiling it in water, though there are some recipes. We tend to cook pasta pilaf style. So tell us about it, Cristina. Generally speaking, pasta in Mexico is cooked in a light tomato broth that is called caldillo. It means a little a little broth, literally, made out of tomatoes and onions and occasionally garlic and occasionally a piece of chile, depending on how spicy you want your, your pasta. Um, generally speaking, when when pasta first came to Mexico, back with uh, Hernán Cortés, right after the, the I don't want to say conquest. I, the term I like to use is first contact. Yes. When the, when the Spanish had their first contact with the people of what is today Mexico. It's, it's really interesting. The story of how wheat actually arrived in Mexico is fascinating. Rice came first, and mostly when the ships were coming over, the voyage was so long and so arduous that people ate whatever was available on the ship and every all the supplies were deleted by the time they got here. But on this voyage, there was a big bag, about a hundred pound bag of rice left over. And when they were going through that bag of rice, they found three, three grains of wheat, three grains of wheat, about the size of a rice grain. So they what, what they did is they planted those three grains of wheat to see what they were going to get. Out of those three grains, one grain sprouted. And that grain grew up and bore uh, wheat. And they harvested from that first single grain of wheat, they harvested about 180 more grains. And they planted those, and wheat began to be extensively planted in several parts of Mexico. Primarily around Puebla in those days, this late to the middle 16th century, and also in the northern part of the country. And the Spanish needed wheat, and this is not really talked about very much, but according to the Catholic Church, canon law requires that the communion host can only be made out of wheat. And so the Spanish planted wheat to make communion hosts, and they also began to make bread, which is what they were accustomed to eating with their meals in Europe. And of course, Mexicans, or the people who are now known as Mexicans, didn't know anything about wheat. They'd never seen or heard of wheat, and they and the Spanish really tried to force them not to eat corn anymore, because the Spanish didn't know corn, and they wanted they wanted the people here to eat wheat instead of eating corn. So it created a division among the people who lived here and the people who were colonizing here. And the truth is that division is still exists today between the people of the wheat and the people of the corn. People who have more money and who can afford to buy bread, eat white bread, people who have less money and, and normally can't afford to eat white bread 
continue to exist on corn. The tortilla, the tamal, all of the things that are made from corn in Mexico today. So the Jesuits took the took corn up into the northern part of Mexico, and they taught people there to cultivate it, and it became a staple, uh, just the way rice became a staple when rice was brought to the to this part of the world. By the 1850s, pasta, the the uh, spaghetti, mostly fideos, as Sorella suggested, and but also spaghetti and other styles of pasta were used as the second course of a meal at home. This is something that uh, most foreigners don't understand, that, that Mexican meals are divided into, uh, the, the main meal of the day is divided into courses. And the first course is usually a soup that has a liquid base, and is served in a bowl and eaten as a regular soup. And the second course is called sopa seca, which literally means dry soup. And everybody that I know who had never heard of it says, what? Dry soup? That sounds really dumb. It sounds like an oxymoron, like it doesn't go together. But it's because of this, the way we cook both rice and pasta in our homes here, that the courses are divided like that. To make pasta, as we started this conversation, uh, people brown whatever pasta they're using to a light golden brown and then cook it in this very light tomato sauce until all of the liquid is absorbed. So you don't, it's not served the way it is in, in the United States when it's Italian style or in Italy or in other countries. It's served as as a, a soft pasta dish that's flavored with tomato. And the tomato sauce is also sometimes flavored with cream, which makes a really interesting dish. But it's a side dish or a, a second course dish. Well, maybe over there, but in our house, it's always a first, as a, a big first course. Because that's, a, that's the first thing that the kids ask when they come here. We want some sopa seca. But of course... <laughs> Some, of course, sometimes I put in clams or I put in other things to make it, uh, you know, more of a main dish. dish. Here, are a lot of times, um, elbow macaroni in all different kinds of sizes, from the tiniest, tiniest size to a, a much larger size. Those, uh, those elbow macaronis are used for a lot of different things, and mostly those are the ones that include other ingredients. Well, uh, finely diced ham, sometimes peas, sometimes finely diced carrots, and those are those are included with the elbow macaroni. And in addition, elbow macaroni, just like it's used in the United States and other parts of the world, is used here to make a cold salad. So we get a bunch of different kinds of things. I was talking to a friend's mother just this past weekend. She's from Sinaloa, from a town called Wasabi. And she says that in wasabi, they make, usually for a wedding, they make a pasta salad that includes pineapple cut in really, really tiny dice. And I'm going to give that a try. It sounds really delicious. But sopa seca usually are little seeds like uh, like cantaloupe or or ABCs. My mom taught us how to spell using that uh, and to eat using the alphabet soup. Yeah. 
Absolutely. There are so many different shapes of pasta here, many more shapes than there are, for example, on your grocery shelf in a normal supermarket in the United States. But if you go to a Latin market, you're going to find pasta brands yeah. that have shapes that are particularly made for making sopa seca. They're, they're tiny, tiny little shapes that go from everything from, from the shape of little clams to little hats to stars, spirals, gears, petticoats, you name it. And I would be remiss, I mean, if you think about some of the traditions and talk about the European influence, if you've ever been to Madrid, you have the famous cocido madrileño, where they serve you all these different sort of iterations of pork, and they make this beautiful broth, and they serve you the fideo broth, you know, which is kind of uh, reinforced uh -huh. with that beautiful pork flavor and the butifarra and the sausages. And I, you kind of have to think there's connection between that pasta and the way that kind of came to Mexico from Spain, no? That's you know? undoubtedly true. And I think there, there's a dish in Italy that I, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of, but it's very similar to a, a sopa seca here in Mexico, but it's, it's made in Italy or was originally made in Italy. Well, I understand that, that it was the Moorish people who used to cook pasta you know, Pilaf style, originally. Interesting. Until I saw your note about the title, I had never heard that term in Mexico. So it may be my my deficit, or it may be something that isn't commonly used to describe it here. But yes, it, it, in some ways it's cooked in a similar way, in that the pasta is browned first, and then cooked in a, in a sauce that gives it flavor in a way that Italians don't use. And also it's aerating it. It's also allowing it to fluff up and allowing the starches to come up and kind of, and, and really hold its integrity with the actual noodle too, is a big part of it. Yes. I think this toasting is really important because it keeps it from getting all clumpy. So That's you know, exactly right. So you can either toast it in fat, or you can toast it in the oven, which is what I do. I toast the I toast the fideo in the oven or the pasta, and you get this wonderful nutty flavor. And so the toasting cannot be underestimated. That's right. And interestingly enough, another comment that I'd like to make is that there are, uh, up until really recently, very few homes in Mexico had ovens. People here still often don't have ovens. The first time I saw this 40 years ago, I was shocked to walk into a kitchen and see a gas stove that looked like a normal gas stove with a door that opened. And below the, the countertop, the stove top, rather than an oven, there was a cupboard, which, which flabbergasted me because, because, of course, we in the United States are pretty dependent on our ovens. Most of us bake, we bake cakes, we bake cookies, we bake breads. And in Mexico, there is almost no home baking. This is, some people are just beginning to bake at home, but this is something really new. So in my experience here, and frankly, my experience goes the full range from the absolute most humble homes to restaurants, really 
high-end restaurants in, in Morelia and Guadalajara in Mexico City. But mostly people do toast their pasta in either lard or in vegetable oil. I personally am a lard person. Me too. I'm a big fan of lard. <laughs> How about you, Aro? Panned a beautiful article years ago for the LA Times called Praise the Lard with the wonderful Jonathan Gold, I think, Mom, right? And um, it spoke about all the, the health uh, properties and benefits of lard. Yeah. So you can't go wrong with it. It is what gives you that 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 umami, that that flavor that is uh, uh, that is so nuanced and so Mexican. So absolutely. But, you know, there, there are a lot of other dishes that are not just pasta seca. You know, in in uh, in the isthmus, there's a we do a lot of macaroni casseroles that would be kind of like like macaroni and cheese, except there's this particular one where they where they grind up ham with a uh, with a uh, cream and onion guard and use that to make this casserole. You know, you layer the the boiled macaroni or rotini or whatever you want, and then put the sauce on it. With, with ham and and uh, cream and, and and a little bit of chipotle chili, and it is the most wonderful thing. It's 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 a castle. It sounds it sounds just fabulous. Do you have a recipe for it in one of your cookbooks? Yes, it's in my in my Oaxaca book. Uh, the only one I have is the Veracruz book. So. Oaxaca is very hard to find. But maybe with the yes, that's why mm -hmm. I only have the Veracruz book. Yeah. Well, we're going to send you one. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. But let's talk, let's talk a little bit about, we, you know, there's obviously a huge Arabic influence in Mexico. You think about the, the wonderful Taco al Pastor and the huge Lebanese community in Mexico. Are there some other grains and other pastas that have permeated the food culture in Mexico that we could touch upon? I think that the other food that's used a lot in, in preparation of sopa seca and eaten enormously here in Mexico is rice. And I, I've listened a couple of times to the podcast that Rick Bayless did. It's a wonderful podcast and talks a lot about the history of rice and, and a lot about the, the terrific restaurant dishes of rice that both of you make. But it didn't talk much about home use of rice. And I, I think I'd like to talk just a little bit about that, because 
We eat so much rice here in Mexico, and I think that it has both a Moorish influence in some of the preparations, and I think that it also has a strong, well, a strong mestizo influence in, in what the the Mexican brought to the to the dish. One of the things that happened after the Spanish arrived here is that indigenous cooks began to uh, be the cooks for the colonizers. And they had to learn a lot of the Spanish recipes and then began to mix recipes with things, ingredients that they knew and how they cooked. And it created a, 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 a kind of food here that doesn't exist many places in the world. I think, Sorella, in, in that podcast with Rick, you mentioned that, that Mexican food is the original fusion food. And I, I made me laugh because I've thought that for years. We've taken so many ingredients from so many different cultures and added them to what we have here to make something that is specifically Mexican food. And the sopa seca that is made from rice here is, is often made with the same kind of tomato caldillo that we use to make pasta for the same kinds of dishes. You know, when I went to finishing school, they used to do canelones, but with kind of like a crepe uh, dish, you know, where you would make the canelone and, and, and stuff it also with ham or chicken with, with a little bit of cream and poblano. Did you ever, did, did you ever get to know that? Because that's the way they also make lasagna. They make lasagna mixing it up with, with pork, with chicken and cream and, and chilies and make this layers and it's fantastic and cheese and it's fantastic. Yes, I recently read a recipe for uh, for lasagna. Basically it looks like lasagna but it's made with, with other things that come from Mexico. Corn, poblano chiles cut into squares and all of this is layered with cheese and with, with uh, sauce. The recipe that I read doesn't Call for a sauce made of with poblano chilies, but I was thinking that that would probably be a really delicious thing to make a bechamel and add ground poblanos to it would give it an incredible flavor. This recipe calls for sour cream and calls for manchego cheese and calls for um, parmesan cheese as well and a lot of fresh cilantro. So I haven't tried that recipe, but it sounds like something that would be really, really interesting to eat. The other thing that I recently found was a recipe that I was determined to make before we had this conversation today, and that is a sopa seca that's made out of fried tortilla strips, which sounds a little bizarre, but it's it's made with the same kind of Caldillo that we use for both rice and for pasta, and then it's it uses a lot of beef stock, and the primary seasoning is chopped mint. So you've got the corn flavor, you've got the tomato flavor, you've got the and the mint flavor, and a little bit of chile serrano that's that's used in making the caldillo. So it turned out to be a really interesting dish. Um, obviously, not a pasta. But it's also not not a rice dish either. It's something completely different. 
I enjoyed finding it and using it. I'll probably write an article about it for the website. Aaron, do you do you cook at all pasta at home? Like, how do you, any any Mexican type pasta? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I've adopted the the sopa seca to many things. We've done it uh, at specials at the restaurant quite a bit, and people just love it. It's something that's very unusual for them to see that. We kind of liken it when we describe it. It's kind of like a risotto texture because it's it has it's inundated with this very flavorful caldillo, and then we finish it with 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 actually with cotija cheese. Uh, to make it a little bit more kind of user friendly and people can really get behind it. But I'd love to have it straight uh, without any kind of foo-foo, just really, really like direct. And it's such a home comforting dish. My mom makes the best one. I'm sorry. I haven't had yours, Christina, but my mom makes the best. I think that we have to clear up the fact that you don't just add the caldillo. You, you, first of all, you, you brown the, the pasta then you add the tomato puree and brown uh, and brown that or season that a little while. Then you add chicken stock or water, whatever that you know to to add the liquid. And you know, with one finger above the the, the level of the pasta. I made caldillo this morning to have with our midday meal today. And the way I always make it is with with I use three tomatoes cut up in in chunks. I use about a quarter of an onion cut up into chunks. I use a piece of chili cut up just a little bit. I add a little bit of water, just enough to grind it, and I blend that until it's smooth and then cook it in a little bit of lard today and and allow it to cook down just a little bit. And then I add uh, chicken broth to it to to give it a more liquid sense. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's too thick to use for caldillo. Well, we have to talk about caldo de fideo. Yes, I want to talk about that right now. So, caldo de fideo, I have a recipe that I really like a lot. I think it's pretty much the, the standard recipe for caldo de fideo. And it, again, it uses that same mixture blended it, in the blender with tomato, with onion, a little bit of chile if you want that, and a little bit of broth or water just to make it liquid enough. And then you add the broth to to the, the mixture. You add more broth. Rather than add maybe two cups of broth, you add six cups of broth to get the, the consistency that you want in your bowl. And then you do exactly the same thing with the fideos for the broth that you do with fideos to make a sopa second. You toast them, I use lard uh, to toast them until they're just golden brown. And you have to be really careful with the fideo noodles. They're, they're basically like angel hair pasta, so they're very, very thin, just like little hairs, and they're, and they're usually very short, so they're about an inch to two inches short. And you have to be really careful to stir them all the time that they're browning. Otherwise, they burn really quickly. Don't ask me how I know this. And, and then you add that to the tomato, the tomato basically broth that you have created for your fideos and cook that for, for maybe 15 minutes or so until the, 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 Fideos have absorbed some of the liquid, but there's still a lot of liquid left to make the soup. 
And then I usually stick some fresh parsley in it so that it adds that, that additional flavor. I like the thick fideos for soup. Yeah? Yeah. Because, we, and I toast them in the oven, and then I make the soup, this, uh, and season it with a puree of ancho chilies with mint. That's a recipe, that's a recipe that I got from this woman in Veracruz. It's the most wonderful fideo soup, and then I put chunks of chicken in it. So it's a, it's the recipe, I will put it, it's on my website, sarela.com, of course, and it's, and it's a fantastic, fantastic soup. When I make the sopa seca of fideos, I usually use chipotle chili, the kind that's in adobo, in a, comes yeah. in a little can or yeah. a great big can. I usually buy a little can. And I, ju I just put that in with the tomatoes to make the broth that the pasta will absorb. So any way that fideos are cooked is fine with me. They're one of my very most favorite pastas. It was an interesting point that you guys mentioned. We, uh, you ladies have mentioned about the idea of the reinforcing the flavor and toasting it. And I think that's really important. And, yes. and my mom, my mom always said, when you toast the, the fideos, it has to sound like sand, you know, and that's a good indicator that you have the right toasting there, you know, and uh, those kind of little sort of um, little prompts when you're cooking are so important for the home cook. That's true, and, and I had not actually ever thought of the sound, but as soon as I heard you and Rick Bayless talking about the until it sounds like sand, I thought, wow, that's exactly how it sounds, like you're stirring sand around in the bottom of the pot. So if people are going to do pasta American style, but with Mexican flavors, how would you suggest, Aaron, that people do it? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I love the idea of a poblano cream sauce. So maybe take all the idea of, of like, you know, if you were going to go sort of the Alfredo direction or cabanada, but, you know, maybe and take some roasted poblano and roasted garlic and the onion, puree that, and then add that to your cream sauce as you were about to add your, your, your boiled pasta. You know, so you'd have like a little poblano kind of cream sauce, I think would be really lovely. So that would be a suggestion. I'd like to do it with Veracruzana sauce. You know, you can get you can get your your, your pasta cooked and, and season it with Veracruzana sauce. And you, Christina, what would you do as sort of in the in the American vernacular of cooking pasta? What would you do? I'm thinking about chorizo in a meat sauce. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done that, but but thinking about it, it makes me want to do it. It sounds really good. Where you might use chorizo, for example, in a basic um, ragu. A ragu, absolutely, yeah. Cooked with pork until it's really a ragu, ragu. And then instead of adding Italian sausage to it, add chorizo to it. Oh, no, you get that because you spend a lot of time in Toluca. If you've ever been there, you know the green chorizo yeah. from Toluca. That might be an option as well, which will be right. great. And you know another interesting technique? is to take, render out some chorizo and then almost do like a gremolata and mix that with breadcrumbs. With tons of, and tons oh, of fresh God, herbs. And then you coat, the, you top a little pasta with that, little garnish of chorizo and breadcrumbs. You could also use chorizo in the kind of baked macaroni that you're talking about, 
where you where you fry the chorizo first and then use that as a meat component in the in the macaroni with a cheese sauce or a tomato sauce, whatever you want. I'm I'm doing my hungry <laughs> happy dance. I love it. We're having chilaquiles for comida today. I poached a chicken breast and made the, the tomato sauce. We're ready to roll here. So I'd like to talk about something that is so shocking to me about pasta in Mexico that honestly, until I started preparing for, for this conversation, it never occurred to me that we have a new kind of pasta in Mexico. We have a pasta that arrived here in 1988. So we're talking fairly recent, 35 years or so ago. And that is the pasta that's used for the kind of ramen soup that comes in a styrofoam cup. This pasta has taken Mexico by storm. And in some ways, it's a really, I don't know, it fills people's stomachs. Mostly it's used by people who are very in very, very humble means, who may not have, for example, the the eight pesos that it costs to buy a 200 gram bag of, of, of pasta to make sopa, but instead have enough money to buy a, a a cup of these ramen noodles that you just uh, that you just add water to. One of the things that shocked me not too awfully long ago was to be driving way way out in the country here in, in Michoacan, and I came upon a little abarrotes, a tiny mom and pop grocery store along the side of the road, not even in a town, but outside a town, and the sign on the on the wall outside in the grocery stores, this it's little one room, barely bigger as big as the bathroom in my house, and the sign said, "We will give you water for your noodles to make your noodles. We have a microwave." And and so this kind of this kind of food, which yes, it's pasta, and yes, it tastes really good. But it's it's it has taken the place in many places of the traditional torta, the kinds of things, other things that Mexicans eat here for snack foods. Instead, people will have a cup of these noodles. I have a statistic here that is, is just amazing to me that in 1988, when when the brand Maruchan first arrived in Mexico. Mexicans were consuming 73,000 of these cups of soup every week. And then by today, we are consuming 4.5 million of these things a day, a day. They are pure salt. Pure chemical. The only thing semi-natural about them is pasta and the way that the pasta is is prepared to put into that cup. But what has happened is that eating so much of that kind of pasta has taken a terrible toll on health here in Mexico, and it's extremely unfortunate. But it's also extremely accessible. When I walk into my supermarket, which I do as little as possible. 
I usually shop in a in a tianguis, which is a street market, or in a municipal market, which is an enclosed market that sells everything. Um, but in the supermarket, there is there might be an entire lengthy aisle of different kinds and brands of these kinds of ramen noodles, and and it occurred to me when I was getting ready for today that this was an important topic since so much of it is eaten here. But then as I began to research it a little more, I realized what a dangerous thing it is as well. It contributes to high blood pressure, it contributes to diabetes, it contributes to obesity. Basically, it's empty calories. You're absolutely right, Christina. I think there's. it's very unfortunate the idea, look, you can take some of those noodles and doctor it up with fresh vegetables, and that's an option. Maybe put a little bit of Maggie sauce in there and some chilies, and kind of you have that as your little your little your little noodle vegetable broth. But yeah, it's unfortunate. I hope I hope uh, Mexicans become more aware of some of its health uh, issues surrounding it, as you as you so eloquently mentioned. I hope so too. So, you know, let's get back to roots and cook for real. Right, exactly. And I think I think exactly what you said are always happening, not only in, for example, the United States, where I haven't been to the United States for quite a while. But the last time I went, my daughter took me to a supermarket, just so I could look at the supermarket. And I was shocked to see how little actual fresh produce, how little actual fresh fruit, and what there was was of such a limited variety. Here we live in heaven. In Mexico, we have fresh fruits and fresh vegetables, seasonal things and vegetables that are available all year long that are absolutely pristinely perfect. And some are for export and many are just for for us to eat here. And, and that doesn't exist much of any place in the United States. Exactly. But as we say in Mexico, este arroz ya se coció. <laughs> we, we are very happy to have had you as a guest. The time just flies when you are cooking in Mexican from A to Z. We appreciate your, your efforts and doing all the research. And it was wonderful to have you and to see you looking so well. Thank you, Sarella. I feel the same way. It's a real honor for me to be with both of you. And it's a, a thrill to be on the program and get a chance to talk with both of you. And Christina, how can everybody continue to engage and get on one of your beautiful food tours throughout Mexico? You can be their guide. Please let all of our listeners know. I certainly will. You can email me. Um, at, my email address is patalarga. P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, A L A R G A at gmail.com, or you can go to my website, which is, uh, it's mexicocooks.typepad.com, and and you can get in contact with me through either of those methods. Um, my website currently has between six and seven million readers all over the world, and is considered to be the go-to website for real esoteric kinds of things in Mexico, things that most people don't talk about. Most people talk about fancy food or modern Mexican cuisine, and my specialty is traditional home cooking. So it's a it's a great joy to have that featured on, on 
Mexican from today. Hasta luego. Hasta luego. Hasta luego. Gracias, Cristina. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simple Cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without your support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Yeah.